This week on the Vergecast, Dieter Bone is on vacation, but Alex Kranz, Russell Brandom, and Dan Seifert join the show. Talk about the Wordle drama, a little bit of Facebook antitrust, and we go through some gadget news. It's a good one. That's the Vergecast coming up now. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello and welcome to Vergecast, the flagship podcast of Dieter Bones Vacation. Yeah! <laughs> Congratulations, Dieter. He did it. He He's on vacation. He's on it. He's he's not here. He's posting pictures of, of power tools to his Instagram stories. I think he's spending his entire vacation in Home Depot. <laughs> Except he's crying about RCS, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's true. Like the news cycle has dragged Dieter back into Twitter several times. Anyway, I'm your friend Eli. Dieter is off this week on a very well deserved vacation. Alex Kranz is here. Hello. Russell Brandon is joining us. Why, hello? And a little bit later, Dan Seifert's going to join us. We'll talk about some gadgets. So, you know, it's a slower week. There's still some things to talk about. I'm going to start bringing back the hits. Dieter's out. I'm just, I'm just playing the hits. I'm like, it's like Journey without Steve Perry. I'm like, you're just doing it. I don't have any new ideas. It's been 23 days since the president of this country promised a website where you could order a COVID test. President Biden said there'd be a website where everybody could get a free test. He said on December 21st, the date that we're recording, it's been 23 days. The date you're listening, it'll be 24 days. I will say, and Russell, I'm curious, I, I've been watching you and McKenna talk about this. There was a report on like PBS that the website would be here this weekend. And then today, President Biden remarks today said next week. So potentially this thing is coming. There is a difference between this weekend and next week, unless you believe the week starts on Sunday. Yeah. Russell, my question for you real fast is, is it just like a holdup in their Squarespace account? Like, (laughs) is that why we're not getting it yet? Well, I I mean, I do think there is legitimately like a non-technological issue in that they want, they they are ordering all of these tests, right? Like they ordered a hundred million and that sounds like a lot, but it's not actually that many when you think about like how many people are in America and how often one needs to test. And so it is like, I think they want to have some of that supply lined up. Okay. But also I do worry, like this is the way people talk about something when they have not actually done it, right? Like, like, yeah. oh, I'll do it this, it'll be in this weekend. Oh, it's next week. And so there is a real, particularly after the Trump situation and with the withering ongoing scrutiny of the Verge cast, 
I think there's a lot of pressure to actually <laughs> deliver on this. Well, I mean, also the surging COVID cases in America, like uh, not to say that the withering scrutiny of the show is not the animating factor in all American political life, but the pandemic is still happening. And yeah. like, I just, I can't say the Biden administration is in like a, a great position right now in terms of pandemic response. They're not done well. And this website is like the dumbest symbol of the whole deal, right? They're like, we're going to give tests to everyone. A website is coming. And like, I don't know. Well, Square, Squarespace, Wix.com. Like we, I read website service ads every week on this show. Yeah. Like, that's not the problem. The problem is the supply and the problem is the logistics of delivering the things. And if they were just open about that, I feel like they could have stood up the website and started taking signups from people the day after they announced there would be a website. And that's the part that I just don't understand. Well, I mean, it is true that as policy editor at The Verge, like the day that they launched the website, I am going to take a hard, pitiless look at it. And, and, <laughs> and the extent to which it's screwed up, I'm going to be on the website within the hour saying, this is screwed up. Why did they launch this garbage? You know, why not fix it if you're going to launch it? And so, like, I do think there's there's they're under a lot of scrutiny. There's no there's no way around it. I think the bigger picture story for me is and maybe this is like the hopeful spin on it. But um, I do think there is like a question throughout the pandemic of whether the government is like actually capable of doing things specifically yeah. <laughs> the u.s government but like i mean yeah. this in some ways was spurred by like jen saki saying what are we going to do mail tests to everyone and everyone said yeah it's like no actually this is in fact people do expect the government to do this that would be a good thing for the government to do and there is kind of a shift in stance and you hope that at some point we turn some kind of corner and we're like, actually, this is a trillion dollar enterprise. We should be able to, like, identify and meet needs for the citizens of the country. No, 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 no. We, <laughs> we conquest for oil. That's what we do here in this country. Um, can you tell where my, my formative political moments were? Whenever it comes out, I'm like, oh, I, I was in college during the Iraq War. Oh, like, yeah. That's it. That's my only frame <laughs> of reference. But I look, hopefully they stand up this website. I just... And we, we're going to dunk on vaporware cars a little bit later in the show. Like, I would just encourage anybody making a tech product, you announce it right before it ships. You don't, you don't just let people wait for your vaporware. Like, you're, you're buying this problem. Hopefully it stands up. Hopefully it doesn't crash on the first day. Government websites. Notorious I mean, I, you have a lot of optimism and hope in your heart. Does that sound like optimism? <laughs> <laughs> Where are hope. you? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hopefully they launch it. It's supposedly coming this weekend. If not, we'll just keep counting. Hopefully you have access to testing, which is fundamentally the most important thing. All right. Speaking of the White House, Russell, you are the policy editor. It's true. There's some policy action in the world. The White House held a security summit, a bunch of open source vendors, big companies. What's going on there? Again, it's generous to call it action. So Log4j <laughs> was this bug that, you know, it was, in fact, pretty nasty. It was basically every network system you want to log the stuff that's happening on your network. In case someone's doing some nefarious stuff, you can go back and find it. Or even just like things are breaking, we want to see what's going on. But logging functions aren't very exciting to code. And so everyone basically uses the same one. Like we made a single open source logging system that is perfectly fine. And it's the one that most people use. And so it was a bug in that, which was very, very scary for people because there's no sort of central repository of how many people are using this and, and thus... Basically, it was assumed everyone was vulnerable and it was this catastrophic thing. So now the White House has 
sort of invited people from all of these big companies, along with the heads of various sort of tech adjacent government agencies to talk about how important open source security is and how we're going to sort of fix it. So it's Apple, Google, Amazon, Meta slash Facebook, IBM, Microsoft is sort of all the all the heavy hitters. And so like the, the joke with open source software is, right, these incredibly important libraries are made maintained by volunteers that no one really knows. Yeah. And they're really important and people fix them out of their hearts. And that's, it's a very reductive joke. I understand it's not always the circumstance, but the, that's always been like the danger with open source. And the pushback is we should control this more tightly, which then cuts against the whole principle and ideals of open source. Where do you think that tension is right now? Well, I mean, it's wild for me because when I was a baby cybersecurity reporter, we had Heartbleed, the open SSL bug, which taught some very similar lessons. And it gave rise to, you know, all of these same companies were like, look, we'll throw in a hundred grand a year to hire some actual people to look at this stuff. And we have the Open Source Security Foundation now that is going through looking at these. I mean, I think it's less about control and more about kind of the infrastructure problem, right? Of let's identify the stuff that really needs a security audit and we want to be very, very careful on. And, you know, when when some new version of the logging software comes out because they say, hey, we found some security issues, install this one. Like people will update it and install it. It's not that hard. It's more just keeping an eye on the worst things that could break and sort of breaking them in a controlled setting before they break in the wild. So, you know, when Heartbleed happened, I don't recall the, any sort of policymakers being like, we must convene a summit and issue a policy and talk about the supply chain of software in the United States as a critical cyber vulnerability. And now, what's the difference? Why is that happening now? Uh, I think there's a sense, particularly after ransomware, that, like, the government should be on top of this. I would say, objectively, more expertise in the federal government than there was when Heartbleed happened. There are smarter people to get in that room. And I think there's a sense that, like, actually, we're not fixing all of these problems on their own, like ransomware being a classic example. And there is a role for, like, the government in at least coordinating. And and I'll say, I mean, this is the other thing we hit about this, is that Google said, yeah, we want this to be a private-public partnership, which previously it was just a bunch of private companies giving money to the open source Security Foundation. And like that was kind of fine because we didn't assume that like the U.S. federal government was necessarily going to play a productive role in any of it. I don't know that we that's necessarily paying dividends yet. But anyway, they're trying. (laughs) Uh, How long until you think this pays off? Like, I mean, that's like the real question here, right? You've got I don't know. It seems like we hear about bugs at this level fairly often. They do get patched. Log4j got patched fairly quickly, but they keep happening. Like how long until this doesn't seem like a forever problem or it's a forever problem with a known management. It's really that second one. Like, I guess yeah. if the question is when will things constantly stop breaking on the internet, the hmm. answer is for as long as there's an internet. Like it's been 23 not- days since Russell promised things would stop <laughs> constantly breaking. <laughs> yeah. But, but I do think, and we already sort of saw this with log4j where like the FTC was very aggressive in saying like, hey, we now have a patch. If you don't patch and you get hacked, we will come after you. Like, we are using our force as a consumer protection agency to make sure that this thing gets secured and and sort of 
everyone does what is understood to be the correct cybersecurity response. So, I mean, that's that's something. I think we're starting to standardize the response to these things. It's a very big boulder and a very sort of large hill. So it's going to take a minute. There's other policy news in the world. The Well, we'll do a whole section on Wordle discourse. Just you wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like reality television, we're going to talk about the one moment of action Stay tuned. in and out of every commercial break, but you have to wait until the last five minutes. Yeah. That's a horrible way to, to like hype ourselves up. I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. The worst line given to us by any reality programming is Top Chef making everyone just be like, whatever. F it. It is what it is. <laughs> Here's my horrible flan. Okay. Speaking of horrible flan, the FTC. Uh, so the Trump FTC tried to sue Facebook. They wanted to break Facebook up, Instagram, WhatsApp. They were not successful. The judge said you haven't alleged sufficient facts to prove Facebook has a monopoly for personal social networking, which is a very odd market if you really think about it. Biden FTC, led by Lena Khan, picked up the case, said, no, we're going to replete it. They added some data to show that Facebook is big, and the judge <laughs> is letting that case move forward. That seems like all they had to do. Yeah. It was such a low bar. There was this question when it first broke of like, you know, these these cases are really hard, right? And like, it's very conceptually challenging to be like, this is the personal social network market. And this is this is like what that looks like and what the clear edges of it are. And it sort of wasn't clear if like it was a conceptual problem or if they just literally had not done their homework. This is what th this is the language the judge used, by the way, is he was like, now they have done their homework. <laughs> and he, it really seems like he just wanted some comm score numbers where they're like, yeah, it's dominant. Like, well, we're going to argue about it in court. But like, this is our basis for saying that. And like, that was pretty much like I was surprised by how little was different that that was able to sort of tip the scales for the judge. Yeah, I mean, it really is just some data asserting that Facebook, it, it really is just like comm score numbers that says Facebook is big. Was there really no data before where they just like, it's big? Do you know how earlier Russell was like, this government has competent people in it? <laughs> I would point you, <laughs> I, like, I think it comes down to that. I mean, um, the Trump administration kind of did things for political purposes. Right. I don't, I don't feel uncomfortable saying that they were often motivated by politics instead of policy. Although this was the FTC. I mean, it, it like, a lot of those people have been in from before Trump. I think part of it is like it has been a, a long time since the FTC sued to break up a major American corporation like that's. Oh, they just like didn't know how is what you're saying. I think they didn't know how. And if it's the Republicans <laughs> leading it, their hearts kind of not in it. Yeah, and it's, like, like, they, it's like they assembled the Ikea and they were like, oh, this one piece is backwards. They're going to take this whole thing apart. Yeah, exactly. And they just walked away. I sort of buy it. I, I guess I'm a little more skeptical and cynical because I watched how the Trump administration pursued AT&T Time Warner. Mm. To your point about their heart, I'm being in it. Their, their best argument against that combination was effectively a net neutrality argument. And they couldn't make it. Because they were anti-net neutrality. So they had to make all these other arguments and they just got their asses kicked. But the whole point of it was to scare CNN. Like, the dude was just mad at CNN. And I, I think a lot of this Facebook animus from that administration was pointed at Facebook moderation policies, right? It's, all, it's, right. It was, it's just kind of the way that that administration works. So it didn't surprise me that they didn't make the case well. 
it surprised me at how little more, how little additional work the Lena Khan version of the FTC had to do to get to the next bar. The end result, though, is that they still have won virtually nothing, right? They're just allowed to go forward. The judge is like, this is a high bar to clear. Like, you might not win. Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised by, like, the tact they took. The thing they want to break up is is specifically they want to carve out Instagram and, and WhatsApp, right? Like, they don't want to get rid of anything else. They don't want to, like, deal with the whole ad duopoly or anything like that. They're just focused on Instagram and WhatsApp. And that just kind of surprised me because I would have not seen that as, like, the real harm of the Facebook monopoly. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Casey has made this point in Platformer, in, especially in the one issue of Platformer we syndicated, that there's a lot of ways to think about Facebook, but Facebook right now is facing so much competition. Yeah. That by the time this court case happens, wh- whether or not Facebook owns Instagram might be totally irrelevant. Like TikTok might have succeeded in destroying Instagram by the time this case reaches a resolution. The judge threw out another claim about Facebook API interoperability and data sharing because he's like, they stopped doing it in 2013 anyway. <laughs> like, why are you mad about this thing they haven't done for years? So I, I do think there's just a lot of that. And I I also think like it you mentioned advertising duopoly, like at the same time, Apple just sort of unilaterally was like, cookies are dumb. Yeah. And like Facebook's ad business has taken a hit. So there's a lot of actual market competition coming for Facebook. So I, I think the FTC is saying this acquisition was illegal and we're going to try to create competition by breaking these companies up. It might be too little too late, but it, it certainly sets a tone for how they're going to think about everything else, including it's all of its VR acquisitions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do. So, like, Casey made the point that, like, the fact that they're scrutinizing the VR acquisition is potentially a bigger deal because it's sort of forward-looking, which I think is true. But I also think, like, we're living in the tech space and we're very sensitive to, like, sort of small variations where, like, TikTok gets a little bigger and, like, it seems like it's on the rise and this is understood to be a threat to, like, projecting out, like, five years in the future Facebook. But, like... Like, it still is just the giant in the room, and it still does own the top three social networks in the world. I mean, if we're calling WhatsApp a social network. But, like, it still is just this massive thing. And I think the nature of the FTC process and antitrust processes generally is that they move really slow because you're trying to do this big, complex thing that has rightfully, for the for the same, like, Time Warner reasons you were describing, like, we don't want it to be a good way to just punish your political opponents. But like slowly setting those guardrails is really important. And I do think it's still like a world in which Facebook has to divest from Instagram and WhatsApp is still a way bleaker future for them than a world in which they kind of squeak by and, and you know, maybe have to pay a fine, but don't get the worst consequences from this case. Yeah, I feel like we don't talk about like, you know, the main Facebook blue app on the show ever, right? We talk about the, well, the company's not called Meta, the Meta company, but the main Facebook blue app, like, you know, them adding a feature to that does not merit our attention. Like we ignore it, but it's still for many people, the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, even for people in this country, certainly for people around the world, especially in in, uh, uh, other countries with kind of different internet access regimes, Facebook is the internet. Yeah. And so like what they do is important. I just think their positioning of themselves now is meta. Their their acquisitions in VR are much more 
stopping that stuff early, the way that the government may or may not have stopped Instagram early, like has a better chance of being successful policy wise than trying to break up Instagram at this moment in time. Like, yeah, I, earlier I said this government was competent. I just meant that like they're not nakedly motivated by politics and something like, like they're, <laughs> they're good at being lawyers in that way. You know, like that's what I mean by competence in this in this regard. I don't mean that they're going to be successful at this because they're they've got home runs on their hand. Yeah, I mean, this this was the big thing that like the big other ruling is that Facebook had tried to sneak in in this dismissal motion. Like, by the way, Lena Khan can't even argue this because she was mean to us earlier. Yeah, and she we, wrote some articles that were mean yeah. to us. <laughs> and, and we got like this thorough, thorough sort of reasoning from the judge being like, no, this is a ridiculous argument. Like, obviously. Anyway, yeah. Google is making the same argument, too. Like, they wanted to be like, so you've tweeted about us before. You may yeah. not be in charge of lawsuits against us. And it's like, no, actually, that's what you want. That's what you want. Like, you want people who are knowledgeable about a subject. Here's my idea for the American justice system. It's the movie Minority Report. <laughs> there's just some people swimming in pools and you call them and be like, should we break up Instagram? And then who knows what's going to happen? Uh, that's just not how anything works. But at the same time that this is happening and we're talking about Facebook's past meta, the company that exists in the present is on a buying spree of VR companies. Yeah. Uh, most notably within, I think Alex and I are both supernatural fans within makes yeah. supernatural. It's $400 million, which is enough to like trigger FTC review. And yeah. so you're like, nope, we're going to look at this. I like within, I like Supernatural. I've had the CEO, Chris Milk, on Decoder. I think he's very smart. And I asked him on Decoder, like, isn't your opportunity to wait until Apple has a headset and then you make an app for two platforms instead of being controlled by Facebook? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. And then, like, money talks, you know, <laughs> like, it's just a thing that happens. Yeah. But that's, to me, that's the danger, right? Right now, there's but one VR application store. It's on the Oculus Quest. Obviously, there's some stuff on the PC side, but the mainstream consumer VR application store is, yeah, is on the Oculus Quest too. It's great that Dieter isn't here because he he wouldn't even have to just recute. He'd have to throw his computer out the window <laughs> for this conversation. But I miss you, Dieter, every minute of every day that you're not here. But it's this one's good. But Facebook has perfect usage data. Yeah. Right? They know what apps are leaving the store. They know what apps are being used on their headset. They have perfect telemetry and they're just buying the winners so that when Apple shows up with another platform, they've got all the winners. They've got all the killer apps already and Apple will have to start from zero. Now, Apple is very capable of overcoming that burden, I think, right? They've got a huge user base. They're not, fa they, they're not Facebook. They don't have the baggage of the Facebook brand or the meta brand or whatever. They've got developers who love them, but it's still like Facebook. You can see them just spending the money on the moat. Yeah. And I think the FTC saying, no, wait, you can't do that. Is seems fairly smart. It seems early. And it seems like regardless of what happens in this Instagram case, when they go to the within case, one argument that FTC will be able to make is we didn't stop Instagram early enough or provide enough scrutiny. And we ended up in this situation. And we don't have to do that again. Yeah. I mean, I will say the most interesting part of all of this to me is like, it is nice if you are funding VR companies, <laughs> that you have this clear exit strategy of we're going to get big enough that will get bought by Facebook, right? And in a world where you have aggressive FTC action, not just on this, but on all like emerging, emerging technology spaces, and you can't just say like, 
Well, Facebook is spending a ton of money to try to get a lead on this entire category of product. And so they're going to we're going to try to get some of that money by developing one of these products. I wonder what happens to that investment. Like if we just see kind of a crunch in the I mean, I don't know. It's it. Th- this is very second order effects, which are like really difficult to predict. But I do wonder how, how that changes the VC math. Yeah, I've definitely heard this argument before. And the, the flip side of the argument is actually Patrick Spence from Sonos has described this argument to me many times. He's like, that creates, but if all anyone is ever doing is getting acquired, you've got a kill zone of innovation around the companies. Yeah. Because only one one idea will get acquired or one company will get acquired. So there, there's a whole range of stuff that the companies might do that's not worth investing in. And like, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a big back and forth. I just, don't you think like being a software developer should be a business that you should run, not just a thing you make so that a bigger company eats you. Like, I think that's like the ultimate question is like most of these companies get founded not to be run as good businesses, but to get eaten by Google or whatever. Or, or Facebook, Facebook or Meta. And I, I think it would be better if we just had some more companies, <laughs> like well-run, <laughs> large, co- like that's just like, it's a, it's a very simplistic way of thinking about it, but that's just in my head. By the way, speaking of Sonos, they won big patent ruling against Google. Yeah. In, the, in their case, at the International Trade Commission, Google had to like turn off features on Chromecast because they were ruled to have violated these patents. Well, it was really weird how they how they violated them too, right? Like, I believe this was a story where Google hit up Sonos and they talked about maybe working together, and then Google was just like, "Thanks for all this cool info. We'll talk to you later." Yeah, and basically. <laughs> this was a great meeting. Yeah, it was like, how do we get a system on the Sonos? And then the, like Google's product roadmap was like a bunch of Sonos tech. Yeah. And Sonos was like, great, are you going to do the assistant thing? And Google's like, what? And, you know, <laughs> the story is much more complicated than that. But eventually, you know, Patrick's position is Sonos is an old company. It has a huge patent portfolio. And the reason you have a huge patent portfolio is to Make create money. leverage. Yeah. And people either steal your stuff or don't give you the deal you want. So I'm eager to see if Google, like, you can, they can either re-engineer everything to get around Sonos's patents, or they can just pay them money and license the patents <laughs> and so give Sonos the deal terms it wants to maybe, like, run two assistants at once, which is the thing Sonos wants most of all, is to run Alexa and Google Assistant at the same time on its speakers. If, if they could run Siri on it, I would not be in my current quest to get rid of my entire Sonos setup. <laughs> to buy like very expensive bookshelf speakers, I've gone all in on HomePod Minis. It's upsetting. Wow, they're just how they're many? All... Wait, when you say how, how many HomePod Minis? Yeah, I mean caveat. I have a three room apartment. So is it, is it four? So I have two. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm thinking about getting a third one, but I feel like it's just going to get activated, never get activated, because it'll be too close. It'll be right next to one of them. But yeah. it's it's great, and Sonos is like. I'm no longer as invested in Sonos as I once was, emotionally speaking. Wow. I mean, I understand. Way off topic here. That's fine. But I'm just saying, like, here's this, like, swirling policy debate about what big companies get to do. And, like, one of the things they got to do was just, like, run over a small company. Yeah. And, like, part of one way to run them is just buy them. Another way is to just, like, throw money. I think Mark Zuckerberg called it, we'll go into, like, kill mode. Yeah. When they were discussing whether or not they would buy Instagram. This came up in the documents. This is like in the FTC case. They're like, Mark's going to go into kill mode. This is-, is that what he's doing in v- in the VR space, going into kill mode? Imagine the, different- the legal trainings after this where they're like, just talk about 
being competitive or wanting to provide the best. Try to avoid <laughs> phrases like kill mode. I feel like they're probably like, Mark, just don't email. Just, just. Well, so, Right. So let's say you're, you're Mark and you run meta. You've got perfect data in the store. You see everyone's using Supernatural. You also have inside of it Facebook move. Yeah. And you can go and you can buy Supernatural for $400 million, which is nothing to Facebook. Or And if they say no, you can be like, all right, we're just going to give something that looks like Supernatural away for free and build it into Oculus Move. And that's like, well, that sucks. <laughs> like yeah. At that point, you have no choice but to sell. And that's kind of what Google did to Sonos, right? They said, we're just going to take your tech and there's nothing you can do. And Sonos at least has some recourse. I think one of the pieces of the puzzle for all of this is like, what are the responsibilities of platformer owners and what do they get to buy? They shouldn't buy anything. If you're the platform owner, you own the platform. That's it. I mean, like you, Microsoft you, taught us this 30 years ago or whatever. Like you can't just be no, sneaking. That was like another lifetime ago. Are you kidding another me? lifetime ago. Who was we president? All... Like George Washington president. <laughs> Microsoft lost that case. Like, <laughs> who cares? All right. We got to take a break. And we're going to come back with some. Uh, we got to take a break. We're going to come back with some hardcore Wordle discourse. It's going to be amazing. We'll be right back. Support of The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Okay, we're back. Who wants to try to describe what Wordle is? I've never played it, so let me try. Okay. Oh, wow. I'm, this is gonna be great. I'm very excited. I've, I've, okay. So you get like slots, right? There, there's a word, <laughs> and you have to guess it. <laughs> and like, the green... When we used to have Paul Miller try to describe a picture to us, it's like a <laughs> segment. All right, go ahead. There's slots. Okay, okay. So, so as I understand it, 
everybody gets the same puzzle every day and it's a bunch of empty squares and they have to put the right letters in in the to get to spell the word and it's the same word for everybody right yeah. yes you've, you've got it so far i've got it so far and you have like a certain number of guesses on each letter no you have six guesses at words total a, a total? That's terrible. That says one word a day. You get six guesses at what word it is. Okay, and you, but then the green. I thought the green, the green, and the squares were just like how many times you guess on each slot. No. So, so I the, would give you. I would give you a yellow square for this part <laughs> of the yeah. answer. It's it's correct. It's all in the wrong direction. So the you guess a word. Okay. And the the letters turn green if you have the right letter in the right position. Okay. Yellow if you have the right letter in the wrong position. And gray if it's the wrong letter entirely. Okay. So those grids that you're seeing all over Twitter are like the little st- – actually, James Vincent wrote about this today. They tell a little story of frustration. Yes. It's like a box like score. how you're guessing and like when you got it right or wrong. So you want like just a single row of green is perfection. Yep. That's all the right letters and all the right spots. And, okay. then, and then the game is over. So that's always at the bottom. And then you've won and then everyone shares it. So this – Guy is a developer. He's in New York. He's from Wales. He made the game as like a love letter to his wife and just like put it on his website. And the game goes viral. So it's all over Twitter, but it's just like a free game everybody can play on a website. It's like I was talking to our deputy features editor, Sarah Jong. It's like a perfect little encapsulation of how we want the internet to be or how we thought it was. Like a guy made a game on his website. I enjoy the game and I don't have insight into their relationship. But I will say it potentially sounds like a bad gift. Like, <laughs> I made you this word game on the internet. Like, all right, dude. Like, the, take her out to dinner. Come on. <laughs> it's a, you're in the panty, baby. We got we to gotta, gotta change it up. Like, like, this is the equivalent of when somebody shows you a YouTube video and says, hey, I want you to watch it. And then they loom over you while you watch it. And you have to, like, respond to it. Like, she, this poor woman had to do the exact same thing. But it sounds like... Maybe. Sounds like it was more successful. I tried to get Becky to play Wordle, and she took one shot at it, and she was like, no, and just, like, <laughs> set it aside. However, <laughs> if you are a certain kind of, like, SAT nerd, this thing speaks to you, and it has, it has gone viral. As with many things, we, we live in a bubble. It has particularly gone viral within the media industry, but, like, whatever. The New York Times has written about it. It's everywhere. But it's just this, like, little freeware game on a domain, powerlanguage.co.uk. Like, it's not a commercial product at all, and it's gone everywhere. So then immediately, the ruthless economics of the App Store came into play. All these clones have appeared. A bunch of clones went into the iOS App Store. That's the one that we've spent most of our time, but I'm sure there's ones in the Play Store, including one just called Wordle that looks exactly like Wordle. My favorite one. And the guy is like tweeting, like, look at how many people are downloading my game. <laughs> and like he's like to the moon because he's added like IAP and like a subscription program and like Wordle premium. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like this thing was pure. So everyone's getting mad at him. Like all of the lions of like Mac software are like, screw this guy. And then you've got the whole narrative around Apple and its app store. That's like from the Epic trial, from everything where Apple is like, we have to be in total control of the store to protect people from scams. And it's like, well, there's here's this huge scam. Were you guys not like, did you not like go and match his URL on his website with the web, with the Wordle website? Like, it feels like it was very low, very easy due diligence to do here. So I Apple. think this is like part of the, this is where I think it gets really tangled. Yeah. 
you know, like the guy's immediate defense was, well, this wasn't trademarked, <laughs> which like definitely makes like as a like IP person, like that makes you sound like such a goon. <laughs> like if your immediate response is like, I was not legally prevented from doing this thing that is everyone is outraged by is like, you might have missed it. He's just one of those guys that spends all of his time on the Reddit. Am I the asshole? <laughs> like he was just like fun. Like legally, I'm not the asshole. Here's what I've done. I've started using your name and I've logged into your bank account, but nothing. There's no trademark on your name. Good, sir. Well, and one of his defenses was, well, look, I offered to give the guy a share of the profits <laughs> and he never got back to me. <laughs> So there's like a lot of these clones. There's like the one that like, particularly because the guy's tweeting was so ire. This gets pressed. We wrote about it. Everyone writes about it. Everyone's mad. Apple takes all the clones down. Including Werder. So now we know that Apple at like a policy level agrees that it made a mistake, right? Like the outcome is they took all the games down. So now it's not like, oh, you snuck through a loophole in the store. It's a, they just missed it. And I, there's like a lot of angles here, right? Can you copyright or trademark or otherwise provide intellectual property? protection to a game mechanic and it turns out there was like a game show in the 70s it's basically wordle it's called lingo i think chuck woolery was the host yeah chuck woolery so we got that woolery tie-in yeah you know it's actually in the app store rules if you recreate a game <laughs> that chuck woolery hosted anyone can copy it so people are talking about this with like 2048 which is kind of a ripoff of threes but for like it you have to expend less mental energy um i have two 2048 apps on my iPhone right now. How? And I have no idea which one is the real one. <laughs> They're indistinguishable. Well, so here's, the, here's how I knew the difference between Threes and 2048. Threes was like a beautifully crafted game, and it was its own yeah. sensation. This was years ago, and we wrote yeah, about yep. 2048 and Threes many times over the years. But Threes was like well-engineered. The first time I downloaded 2048, my phone got hot and my battery died. And I was like, well, this is what you get. <laughs> like, the end. I think here, right, there's all of the there's all of the discourse around what legal protections games have, game mechanics have, names have, there's whatever. That's all like outside the realm of the fact that Apple insists on total control of its store. And one of its rules is don't copy other apps. Like you can go look it up. It's one of the rules. Right. It literally is like be original. That's not, there's no law in America that's like you must be original. <laughs> like that's not not the, yet. Yeah. That's the Kanye that. platform. Vote Patel. Uh, Patel. <laughs> Patel. Yay. Uh, 2024. Be original. Um, but I I just don't think like the those legal arguments make any sense in the context of Apple's insistence on total control, and then the fact that Apple it's so easy to this was almost the expected result that someone would scam this guy's idea or his virality and turn it into an app store success. I keep thinking of Flappy Bird when the guy took down Flappy Bird and immediately there were like 12 Flappy Bird clones, most of them looking the exact same. And it's yeah. just, I'm always kind of baffled by the idea that Apple maintains, insists it has total control. Well, so I could kind of, I can distinguish the Flappy Bird case. Okay. This is good. This is some real law school. I'm ready. Mr. Patel, can you distinguish the Flappy Bird versus App Store case? <laughs> the Flappy Bird guy was like, my game is poison. I'm ruining the <laughs> lives of people around the world. I will not be I will not be complicit. And that was true. And that's how he felt. And so he was out. And yeah. so other people just like rushed to fulfill the demands. <laughs> like, what is Apple gonna do in that case? Be like, we shouldn't have built it. 
Who is this guy to deny us the experience of Flappy Bird? <laughs> Who made him God? It's just Oppenheimer making the bomb. So that's just a little different. Like here, I think the biggest open question, and it's like fascinating, is like the Wordle guy hasn't said anything about how he might wish to capitalize on the viral success of his game. Maybe he just has his phone off this week. Maybe he his he and his wife have like gone out for a week, having a nice time. And he's going to get back. Well, it's got to be costing him money to like run the server, right? Yeah, but if he's like got his computer off, he's going to come back and be <laughs> like, "What know. is my server bill?" I like to think that that this is his his wife is like furious at him because of this because it was a bad gift, and she's <laughs> like, "Look, just don't, just let's not ever mention the game ever again." And he's like, "Okay." I'm sorry, I'll make it up to you. And then all this happens. And he's just trying to keep a low profile, happy home. And uh, so that's probably why we haven't heard from him. Yeah, he's like, I can't I can't get in this Wordle thing again. I don't even want to know. Honey, my, my bad gift went viral. I think I would suspect he that the end result of this is that thing becomes a real product and like is monetized in some way. And I think that actually cuts against... Again, I think one of the reasons people like this and one of the reasons I like it is it's a freeware game on a website. It's yeah. not an app. There's no mechanics. There's no. It's not begging you to buy extra moves. Is there a little like banner at the bottom that you always accidentally click on? Nothing. Nothing. Someday the real move is to monetize the word so that we'll all log into Wordle and the word will be like Honda. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, that's actually pretty brilliant. Um, okay, so that's the Wordle discourse. It is ongoing. I will tell you, if, if you're in your head, what you're thinking is, but can you monetize it or can you protect a game mechanic? The answer is no one knows the answer to that question, right? Like that's a challenging legal argument to make. Because he didn't copyright it. No, because yeah. it's not like written down. Like it's very challenging. Like there's not a, none of our existing IP regimes like fit it perfectly. Yeah. Like a game mechanic. So you have to, you have to like invent one or like shoehorn it into another one. It's, it's yeah, it's, we, we can't do it here. I, I'll just die. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing it. We're not doing it. Other weird discourse of the week. The wall street journal thundered onto the scene years late and was like, teens don't like green bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you've been paying attention to this show or The Verge, uh, we we know that green bubbles cause social dynamics in groups of people, particularly young people. Uh, we did a whole episode of Why'd You Push That Button with Ashley and Caitlin years ago. Uh, and, like, the lead was, like, a guy on Tinder who's like, I keep getting rejected when we move to text because my bubbles are green, which is ice cold. It's amazing. So we've we've known for a long time that green bubbles, blue bubbles cause social dynamics, especially with younger people. The Wall Street Journal's headline was like, teens are bullying each other because of blue bubbles. Good. And once you bring teen bullying in, like all bets are off. So then Google, Hiroshi Lockheimer is like, Apple should stop enabling bullying, which is <laughs> great. I mean, take, you know, take the shot. I just realized where you're going and I'm so excited to get there. Well, it's just like, <laughs> I get it. Eventually, some politician is going to be like, iMessage enables bullying. What we should do is make encryption illegal. Like you can just yeah. see how once you add bullying to the mix, like no one can make any arguments and what you have, like the FBI will like live in your bathroom. Like the argument, poor Dieter has been screaming for RCS for years. Yeah. And all he had to do was be like, actually, 
teens bully each other without RCS. <laughs> That's all. It's the only had, bad argument you ever had to make. All they want. So Hiroshi, who I don't think is trying to make this argument entirely, is saying we shouldn't bully people. The clarifies what he meant is we shouldn't hold people back. What he really wants is RCS. I mean, we're just here at this point of the discourse now, right? Like, we're, we've gone all the way to teen bullying is a problem because RCS doesn't exist. At some point, and I, I now I really do miss Teeter, I'm just curious why the carriers, which can force Apple to run lies about the status of their 5G network on display <laughs> on your screen at all times, AT&T is like, yeah, just call it 5GE. That's the rule. You want, like... You want on this network? It's five. Put the logo on there, Apple. And Apple will do it. Why none of the carriers have been like, yeah, it's time to support RCS. Like, just turn it on. I think it's one of those things like there's this kind of knowledge when you're interviewing certain celebrities. Some of them have questions you're not allowed to ask. Like for years, you were not allowed to ask Jodie Foster if she was gay because we all knew it. But you weren't allowed to ask it. And I think it's like the same thing. This first cast has taken a deep turn. <laughs> but I think it's the same thing of like, they're not allowed to ask Apple about RCS. It's just like you walk into the room <laughs> and they're, and like, there's a handler and they're like, so um, RCS don't, don't even use those three letters together. Yeah. Like real, what was it? Like that's, that's what I'm thinking there. Like don't ask Tom Cruise about Scientology. It's yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's just like certain things you're not allowed to ask them. I will say, I am not sure that RCS is going to solve the teen bullying problem. <laughs> and more broadly, like, I even think people still make fun of Android users in unfair and, and hurtful ways. I once witnessed, I live actually next to a high school, uh -huh. and I witnessed a group of teens making fun of one of the teens because she listened to SoundCloud. <laughs> That this was like, oh, like Spotify is like actual music, but SoundCloud. And she was like, guys, it's for the mixes. But that didn't do anything. <laughs> but I'm just saying these these platforms, like the, the, the cleavage points between the platforms, it's always going to be a cause of social division. Yeah. If you can give the teens a reason to bully each other, they're, they're going to do it. I just think that messaging interoperability is like one of those things where... All you need is a handful of teens to be like, I had green bubbles and I was excluded from school activities. And then I swear to God. I'm excited for this congressional hearing. I'm not saying Apple needs to build iMessage for Android, right? We have the documents yeah. where Federighi and Schiller are like, no. <laughs> like, no, that will, <laughs> that will that, like the lock-in is important to us. Like we have the emails. Yeah. I'm saying that in the, current encryption debate you just like you give them the teen bullying and then like any politician is like what we need to do is turn off encryption so parents can read all of your text messages it's like what just happened i mean the thing is they're rebooting degrassi like this could be a plot line that could bring all of this to a head that's what you need yeah a little proto drake being like i got yelled at because i got green bubbles yeah all the shows in my youth did like a, a very special episode about drug usage Blue Bubbles. Yes. Just like sweeps the teen show landscape. All right. We'll see. Next week, we'll have Dieter back on. I'm sure the RCS... I'm curious what his thoughts on RCS and teen bullying are. Uh, <laughs> we'll hold it for next week when he's back. We got to take a break. Russell, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Dan Seifert will be on right after this. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity... 
But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back. Dan Seifert is here. Hey, Dan. Hey. We got like a real grab bag of post-CES gadget news. We got some car stuff to talk about. But I want to start with my favorite gadget story of the year so far. And I recognize it's only the beginning of the year. But I think this one's going to stay in the lead for a long time. So as you know, there's a chip shortage. One or two. The chip shortage has expressed itself in many ways. Maybe most notably like the, the blood sport of acquiring a PS5. However... Canon can no longer find the appropriate chips to enable the DRM for its printer cartridges, like its ink cartridges. So now they're shipping the cartridges without the DRM chips and just instructing their own customers on how to defeat DRM and Canon printers. And it turns out all you have to do is click OK. (laughs) It's just very good. Um, But the printers are, when you put the cartridge in, the printer's like, no, that's a fake toner. Because they don't have the DR. It's great. I hope they never find supply for these chips. Like, destroy that supply. Everybody who's doing that, pivot to something else. Pivot to PS5 chips. You're fine. So the button isn't okay. It's close. Oh. (laughs) You just close close the pop-up window that comes up. (laughs) Like, it turns out you don't actually have to worry about this warning at all. (laughs) We've been lying to you to sell the cartridges (laughs) in a markup the whole time. Uh, I hope they never, ever solve this problem. Um, The other thing I'll note, uh, as you know, the chip shortage led to a dramatic reduction in supply of Apple's $19 polishing cloth. Oh, my God. Shout out to Alex Heath. The polish, the cloth is uh, back in stock. I believe Heath is did he, purchasing did he, one. We're going to make him do like a two-hour video review of the cloth, the most important product Apple's ever sold. I'm just upset he didn't report this out. We should have made him write this yeah. first. Mr. Fancy Facebook reporter. No, you're writing about cloth, man. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's start with gadgets. Uh, we, we just came out of CES. We're starting to write some of our CES trend stories. Dan, it seems like the the story of PCs is just on a radically different trajectory now than we thought it would be a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, laptops are so hot. I mean, which, which is like an obvious thing to like any of us that have just like come out of the past two years uh, and are still in it. But, you know, the, it, the, it's real. You know, sometimes you wonder if I remember, I don't know, a year ago or whatever, and like you wonder if those stories that like there's so much demand for laptops, people are buying up Chromebooks and buying up laptops and buying up PCs and stuff like that. You wonder how much of that is real. And now we like after two years of, you know, successive massive growth in the PC industry, it seems like it absolutely is real. And it doesn't look like it's going to slow down, which is kind of interesting. Depending on who you talk to, they they wonder if like, you know, was it peak laptop in 2021 or are we still going to be seeing lots of like 
huge growth in this industry over the next year as people maybe maybe one some theories have been floated that like maybe in 2020 you bought the laptop you could find because you needed something immediately but you don't love it like you had to get the chromebook because it's not great and now it's like okay well you're two years later you've lived with it now it's like maybe you're ready to actually get the the laptop you want that macbook pro that you wanted is now available and so like you're out buying it, um, which is seems to be a, a thing. So, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of wild to think about that. Like we were spent what five to ten years asking what's a computer, and it turns out a computer is just a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dieter, you're on vacation. You cannot rebuttal that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> D- like Dieter's gonna listen to this and like drive to your house. <laughs> no, but Monica has a great piece coming out of CES that like you know the design cycles for hardware eighteen months ish. We, were, we had mm-hmm. Brack and Daryl, the CEO of Logitech on. He was like, yep, yeah, about 18 months. Now the products that we designed for work from home are coming out. I think that's true across the industry. So Monica has a great piece. And she's like, all these laptops at CES are meant for work from home or for creator stuff or for a permanent home office, which is the thing people are talking about. And the, at the beginning of the pandemic, all, they were just selling enterprise laptops or whatever they had on hand because there's no supply. Now they're not just selling what they can make. They're selling stuff designed for it. And it means kind of our traditional laptop categories are all out the window. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. The One of the points uh, from Monica's piece is that people want more powerful computers for a variety of tasks, even if they're like not necessarily gaming. Like it used to be that like if you were buying the most powerful computers because it was specifically for gaming, it had a crappy keyboard, terrible trackpad. Uh, maybe it didn't have a webcam. Like for, for a couple of years, our favorite gaming laptop just didn't have a webcam. Guess what? CES 2022, that very laptop now has a webcam. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's, and, and and people are demanding more powerful uh, devices because they are sitting at a desk and they're plugging it into a big monitor and they are doing multitasking a lot more than maybe they used to be because they are relying on it for eight to 10 hours a day to do their jobs. And uh, we're, we're seeing that paired with a great keyboard and a great um, trackpad and, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, better webcams. We'll see when we get them. They're probably still terrible. Webcams will forever be terrible. But, like, at least they're there now, uh, which is an interesting divide. So, like, now now you've got computers that are maybe just as powerful as a gaming laptop would have been a year and a half ago, but it's designed for doing work or maybe doing both because you work on it and then you also play games later on it. So, Can I say, Monica's piece has this great quote from Alex Cho, the president of personal systems at HP. Gamers game because they want to connect. It's like <laughs> gamers game, baby. Like bring it on. <laughs> gamers be gaming. Yeah, it's good. I think it's I think it's utterly fascinating to see that the emphasis on portability in laptops is like slightly waning. Mm-hmm. That MacBook Pro I mentioned, I bought one. It's definitely heavier than my old one, mm-hmm. but it lives on a desk almost all day long, and it doesn't matter, and it like can do what I want it to do. I'm staring at one that's like sitting in a vertical dock on a shelf <laughs> behind my desk. Like, I don't even, I, I sit at this desk eight to 10 hours a day and I don't even touch the thing. Like, it might as well be a desktop computer. Yeah, why don't because there's no M1 Pro Mac Mini. There you go. Yeah, that's what you're waiting for. Um, that's great. You're missing out. That's a beautiful display on that little computer. <laughs> I, I thought about buying, and I was like, why would I buy a display that's worse than the display on the computer? <laughs> that, uh, that struggle is real. Uh, yes. So the, the flip side of that is we, we of all this is there's lots of demand. There's going to be supply. Um, TSMC set aside $44 billion for chip expansion in 2022. We just had Cristiano Amon, the uh, CEO of Qualcomm. He said he thinks chip shortage stuff 
for them anyway, will be over by the summer because they've already pre-allocated supply. So it just seems like the tech industry has kind of figured itself out. And now we've got a bunch of products that were designed for the new normal, which is pretty fascinating. Did you see that elsewhere at CES? Uh, you know, this was a weird CES. We, what we saw was uh, this CES was very falling back on like what the traditional CES type of thing was in that it was like a lot of laptops announced and a lot of TVs announced. And then we saw a lot of things that were like maybe we were expecting to be announced and kind of like got pushed out. And so maybe they didn't announce it at CES because their product wasn't ready or, you know, they didn't attend CES because, you know, very valid reasons, just like we didn't intend in person. So it, it was kind of an interesting CES in that respect. Um, TVs were huge, uh, were very popular. Uh, some of our most popular articles over the CES week were about the new TVs, about the fact that LG finally is coming out with a 42-inch OLED and that, you know, the QD OLED and stuff like that uh, are addressing a lot of the complaints that we've had with OLED technology, which has been really great so far, but isn't as bright. So QD OLED makes it brighter. So that, that's, I don't know if that's like really tied to like the pandemic though, other than maybe people are just sitting at home watching TV all the time because <laughs> that is your theater, your home theater. Like, you know, maybe there's like a through line you can pull to that. But I also feel like new TVs are always going to get better and people are going to be interested in newer, better TVs forever. Did we see anything like about, so we, we know that, that laptops are changing and we're even seeing, you know, she talked to, to Logitech and, and we're seeing like peripherals and stuff are changing. What about the furniture? The home office furniture, is that like, did we see anything at CES like better standing desks because they all look the exact same right now and they all look <laughs> like they belong in our office in Manhattan? I mean, there's some nice ones looking out there. There, you know, you can get wood wood table ones. Yeah. I've got a wood one. I mean, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know if we saw money at CES specifically. Yeah. The, and it, it's, a, it's like one of those things that feels like one of those things where like, that is the experience that we missed mm -hmm. by not being on the show floor yeah. and not being in those weird halls is that there might be some companies with some weird new standing desk design that like fits in your home, but like they're off the radar. And the only way you're really going to know about them is if you walk by it and be like, what is that weird thing? And and unfortunately, we didn't have that experience this year. It was very much, you know, remote. Uh, so that possibly, but we didn't see anything standing out. Obviously, the the gaming companies, I think, I think Razer recently announced the desk. I'm not sure if it was SES or before. They did announce um, one with the computer built in. Yeah, I mean, like, that's like, that's Razor. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Razor. <laughs> no, I just, I'm really curious to see, like, I love that we're kind of, there's was this immediate transition in the laptop space. And I keep thinking about, like, you know, in the 90s, everybody either had a computer in their kitchen or they had it in that weird hutch. Bring back computer rooms. Computer dead. Bring it back. Yeah, the weird little hutch in the in the room. Yeah. And, like, where are the hutches? Where, like, I don't want to have to look at, I mean... I have to look at my, I don't, I can't, don't have a place for my office. So I have to look and I, I miss a hutch. Can I tell you one of the longest running feature pitches I've had at the verse that ne literally no one has ever taken me up on. And if you're listening to this and you're a writer and you want to do this, just like, let me know. Okay. There is a flat pack furniture association mm -hmm. in this world, right? Where all the flat pack furniture makers get together. They have conventions it's real. It's a real thing. Does Ikea all show up in like full black? Like I want to know. We're the big dudes on campus. Like I want, I've been like, we should do a story about like whether like the people at Souter Woodworking are like sit around me and I was like, those fucking Ikea guys again. Like, 
<laughs> like, is how competitive is this industry? Give me the personalities. Is there like a number one flat pack furniture designer guy who dresses all like the Johnny Ive, the flat pack furniture, and he's just like a dick to everyone, but he's got the best idea. Like, get me in there. And I've pitched the story so many times, and everyone's like, what is wrong with you? I want to know the answer. It's like a billion dollar growing industry. Let me in there, man. Like, you know, like, uh, uh, some stuff is easier to put together than other stuff. If you've ever moved house, you like had this experience. You're like, oh, this like the, these instructions make sense. Like, got through it, and then other stuff is like, so it's 900 screws. That's what you got here, right? <laughs> Do those people feel bad that they're like, I'm just horrible at designing flat pack furniture? <laughs> if you if you if you're a writer and you're listening to this and you want to do the like 15,000 word dive into the drama. <laughs> An agony of flat pack for like. Let me know because I've been I've been looking. I mean, I, I want to read that. I want to read that. I don't want to write that story or report that story, but I want to read that story. <laughs> I just like I just love thinking of the idea of like a rock star flat pack furniture designer just like walking through the convention and everyone's like, oh my god, he's like yeah, he's obviously right. He's like obviously Swedish. Yeah, he's got like a little entourage. He he doesn't have to wear the name badge. They just let this person in. I don't know why it's a him. It's a her. Who, who knows who it is? Yeah. Like, but like she shows up and like everyone's like hushed tones and like one person tries to talk to her and like an assistant's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Do you know how few screws and dowels she put in her last piece? You don't talk to her. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. It's there. It's, it's gotta be there. <laughs> no one will do the story. Okay. There's a bunch of like, wacky android news and none of mm-hmm. it's good but we're gonna like mm-hmm. talk through it well i'll say this android 12 is out the rollout is super rocky yeah it's been a rough few months what's going on uh so allison johnson uh did this great report actually just went up today uh this one of the things that we had observed over the last few months was that uh android 12 updates had been really rough. Samsung released it and then pulled it. OnePlus released it and then pulled it. Google itself released it and put it on the Pixel 6s and those released. And then they're really buggy and they released an update in December that had to get pulled. And it's just been like a mess all around. Uh, And there's this weird tension um, between Android enthusiasts who really want updates really quickly. Like as soon as that update is announced, they want it on their phone. And the manufacturers who actually delivered their updates earlier this year than typical, except they were a hot buggy mess. <laughs> and so it's like, which which one do you want? Do you want, uh, you know, this, uh, this uh, update to be, you know, six weeks later than you desire? Or do you want it to work? And so like, you know, the, it, it was this weird tension. And so Allison did a lot of research. She compared the timelines to prior years. Uh, it turns out like Android 12 was actually released by Google a month later than prior uh, history, but Samsung released its version of Android 12 earlier than it had in the past. Uh, and and the, so there was a, the, the weird timing dynamic, but the, the gist of it was, and she spoke to Michelle, who uh, listeners might remember from XDA developers, he used to be the editor-in-chief there, a real like, kind of like an Android expert. And he, the point that he kind of made was that this is one of the biggest updates in Android's history. I think the biggest update since Android 5 or 6, he said. Um, and there's a lot of things going on. We see a lot of visual changes, but there's also a lot of under-the-hood changes. And uh, the potential for problems is just exacerbated when it's such a big update. And then you combine that with the the timeline changes and things like that. And uh, in certain circumstances, like with OnePlus, they were trying to merge a code base of their 
color OS and their oxygen OS together end with Android 12 on top. Uh, and it just like kind of collided and they had to pull their update before. I'm not sure if they've re-released it at this point, but it's just been like a really rough few months. And so that Allison's report does a really great job of like kind of explaining why it's been that case and laying out the timeline. So if like, what the last few months have been. And and for the Pixel 6, Google said they were going to release uh, this fixed update in late January. We're still waiting for it. And this update that was supposed to come out in December uh, added features for uh, Google's new wireless charger that goes with the, the Pixel 6. So like, unless you got that update in December before it got pulled, which very few people got it, uh, you can't like utilize the charger fully and stuff like that. And there's other weird bugs and, and, and hiccups that need to be addressed. So, uh, it's just been, you know, not a great update season. It's very exciting to get a new Android update, especially one with Android 12 that like brings as much change to the table because OS updates for smartphones can be kind of stale at this point. Like there isn't a whole lot of difference year over year. Uh, Android 12 is different. Like it is visually a very different thing right away, but, uh, Bringing, bringing some pain too. My sense reading Allison's piece, which is excellent, everybody should go read it, is it was almost like Google kind of said, "Fine, you you want fast updates?" Like Samsung was like, "Fine, you want this? I'm, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it to you. Here we go. We're gonna go fast. See, that sucked, didn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> They're just like tempering expectations. Yeah, I mean, like Samsung specifically uh, in prior years has had a pretty long beta cycle of a couple of months, maybe three months or whatever, before releasing the final one. And this time it was like four weeks of beta, and boom. We're delivering it, and oh, whoops, we broke a bunch of folding phones in Korea. Oh, that's why we do those six months of beta. That's actually good. <laughs> okay, I said there was more Android news. So Android 12 rushed out maybe too fast. 2021 came and went. Uh, Microsoft did not deliver Android 11 to the Surface Duo at all. We have no idea what's going on there. Uh, I think we know that the Surface Duo is just not a high priority for Microsoft <laughs> is what the answer there is. They said is. they were going to do it. It's an expensive phone. At the same time, NVIDIA put Android 11 on the NVIDIA Shield, including the one they shipped in 2015. Did you? Yeah. Now that you love to see. This is my favorite thing about the NVIDIA Shield. Almost all of them use the exact same guts, the same processor. Like, they haven't really upgraded the processor since that 2015 one. All they've done is shrunk it. So it was like, they apparently <laughs> made a processor so... I mean, it was too powerful for, for the TVs at the time. Like, it was totally unnecessary power. And it's just like, oh, wow, when you think about power in your smart home product, especially your smart TV product, and you give it yeah. power it has a much longer life something for all tv manufacturers the world over to take no, note no, no. our samsung tv <laughs> runs on a hamster and a wheel um <laughs> he can he can complete one task per minute uh no software updates will ever be provided unless it's to deliver advertising to you smart tvs <laughs> but this is like a big update for the shield i'm it's weird because the shield is is very popular in like super nerdy home theater circles so this yeah. is like kind of a big Alex, sometimes deal. I forget you're, you're newer to the show. Yeah. Uh, oh, the, the Shield owners listen to the show. I <laughs> they, love you guys. They're aware of us. You're my favorite. Nobody ever like, wants to talk with me about Shield and Slacks. Oh my God. See, we, I knew this was perfect. You should have just said this in your interview. Yeah. Like, I'll talk about the Shield. I'll talk the about shield the people. Shield. You guys hit me up. <laughs> we'll talk about how excited we all are. I like I've honestly one of the highlights of I've been, I've been out of town for the last few weeks and one of the highlights of returning home is I'm going to be able to put Android 11 on my Nvidia Shield. Oh, that's good. It's great. Is it Shield your go-to? Is that your main box? I switch between it and the Apple TV just kind okay. of to feel alive. 
yeah. to experience. Uh, I will say that I've almost entirely given up on our Chromecast with Google TV. It's rough. Uh, I gave up on mine. I yeah. I replaced. I had three of them. I've replaced all of them with Apple TVs because I'm I'm done with it. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that the Apple TV, the user interface, is not as good as the right. Chromecast. There's a reason I was like very into the Chromecast. It was great. Well, and it's got uh, live TV built in. Like yeah, poorly. no, that was good. Uh, one one click to get to Peppa Pig. I mean, that's a game changer for a parent, man. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it not working is not a game changer for your three year olds. <laughs> Peppa's all in purple, and she's making ter- like monster sounds. Bad. Uh, so we went back to the Apple TV, but maybe I'll break out the shield. Get that, bust that shield out. It's pretty good. Do some GeForce now. It'll be great. Big news on the on the shield front. Um, it's going to support 4K HDR streaming for GeForce now, which is pretty cool. But then on the other, on the flip side, right? It's Fortnite's back in the iPhone through GeForce now, which is <laughs> amazing on the web. So or the the slow advance of cloud gaming continues. All right. One last Android thing, and then we should talk about cars. The Sony Xperia 5.3, nine months after it was announced, is now shipping in the United States. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like the ultimate vaporware success story. You, you can buy last year's phone today. Yay. Yeah. Speaking of vaporware and cars, uh, Tesla removed all mentions of 2022 <laughs> from the Cybertruck website. We, we went on about this last week. Like The number of EV announcements that have no dates next to them, is out of control. I will say that um, someone tweeted me that apparently at when Elon won Person of the Year, Martha Stewart asked him about Cybertruck ship dates <laughs> at the event. Look, she's got to clear the brush on her property. She needs and something so to put And so at that in. event on December 13th, 2021, he said to Martha Stewart, the Cybertruck will be in production roughly a year from now, Ooh. which implies 20, 2023. They just hadn't updated the website. And I don't think anyone was paying attention to this interaction between Martha Stewart and Elon <laughs> at a Time magazine cover party. So, like, sure, maybe the decision was made earlier. But in any case, it shifted back. How livid is Martha going to be if they don't deliver in 2023? She should have broken that news on her blog. Yeah, I know. Right? Martha. Put it on the site. I love that she asked about it. Tweet it. Put it on the site. <laughs> Martha is very online. We, uh, Caitlin Tiffany wrote a feature about Martha Stewart for us ages ago. And it turned out Martha is like very online. Anyway, vaporware car. The other kind of like piece of this puzzle, which I think is interesting. And I, this is one of those like impossible questions. Ford is allowing dealers to tell people who buy the F-150 Lightning that they cannot resell it for a year because they do not want people to buy it and immediately scalp it, which is something like, sure, we've seen all over the place with PS5s and Xboxes. To do it with a pickup truck is like amazing. It's just like fascinating. Like, I don't know the answer to that question. Like, I don't think scalpers are great. So this is not a Ford policy. This is like your dealer could do it and Ford will be like, cool. You don't have to agree. It's just one of those like I kind of hate you see, it. Like Ford's like putting it out in the ether. Like maybe this is a good <laughs> idea. Well, we've seen it before with exotics. Uh, they did this with the Ford GT, the 2017 edition, I believe, the one that they redesigned that makes it look modern as opposed to retro. You could, if you bought it, you couldn't sell it for two years. You were like signed an agreement saying you would not sell it for two years. And Ferrari does things like you can't buy the new Ferrari unless you own an existing Ferrari. Uh, so it's it, it's 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 kind of interesting to see those strategies. 
uh, make their way to the most mainstream vehicle ever made, which, you know, maybe there would be scalpels. But the, the, the funny part is, like, I don't expect, like, scalpers to be the ones putting markups. I expect dealers to stick markups right. on these things. Like, like, like when you have a dealer market, market, excuse me, they can charge whatever they want to sell the vehicle. And if there's a lot of demand for a vehicle, they will add markup to it to make a higher profit. So like, that's where the, the scalping is going to happen. Well, so, right. So I think the idea is Ford doesn't want its dealers to do that, but it wants to protect dealers from scalpers who will then do like nothing makes a car dealer matter than being forced to sell it MSRP and then having the car <laughs> flipped, which is like a thing I've heard about with like mach and stuff. Like that's a real thing. The Bronco, like Ford in particular, Ford isn't like the lucky position of having like, a number of hot cars right now. Yeah. And so like the Bronco, you can still get a first edition Bronco, which is stopped making ages ago, just because there's like some guy who bought one the first day and is now like $300,000. <laughs> and he's just waiting to see if it happens, right? Like, Or, or the people selling RAV4 hybrids for a hundred grand. I respect those guys. <laughs> but those are dealers. Like that's a dealer being like, maybe we can pull this off. <laughs> Right. I think like that dealer model, I was tweeting about this like a couple days ago. People are like, well, this is why Tesla has a direct sales model. But the difference is right now it's like impossible to buy virtually every Tesla. And Tesla can just like unilaterally raise the prices, like whatever. Um so I don't I like I said, I think it's one of the hardest problems to think about. Like my instinct is like you bought it, you can do whatever you want with it. I I drove off this lot, I could sell it five feet down the street if I want to. It's my car. But at the same time, I think it's really like in PS5 world, we think it's really unfair to all those kids who just want a PS5 that the best way to buy one is to spend $700 on eBay. It is really unfair to all those kids that will want an electric F-150. <laughs> <laughs> those poor babies. Like, it's really unfair to all those kids like me, a mid to late 30s <laughs> guy who wants an electric F-150 and doesn't want to spend $200,000 on it. I don't know. I'm just saying, as long as basically the market for electric cars is like a bunch of vapor, I think these these things are just going to keep happening, right? Like, there's just not enough supply. You can't just like spin up a car factory and make more cars. Like, that's a years out process. So as long as we're in this weird moment where there's no actual EV transition happening, we just keep pretending there is one with like renders of electric cars. Like, this problem is going to keep happening, and actually acquiring the cars is going to be almost impossible. I'm happy to destroy the universe, or excuse me, I am happy to destroy the environment to not spend $100,000 on a RAV4 hybrid. See, like, that's the problem. I am the like, problem. That is a I'm rational, personal, economic decision. Very content to say, oh, 70000 or what is it, $50,000 more? Or I consider you to contribute to the destruction of our planet. Goodbye, What's planet. What's the number? Is it... Is it the $10,000 like Prius superiority premium? Like it's not a hundred thousand dollars. Like that's the big question. Yeah. (laughs) What's the number where I'm like, Oh, maybe the the environment matters slightly more than my wallet. Yeah. Um, the person driving the hundred thousand dollar RAV4 prime is like, they've got like the, the the huge sign on the back. That's like, I paid a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars for this gas mileage, but they probably got it from like Bitcoin. So this is just them like trying to make it up. Just imagine the vanity license plate. (laughs) 100k RAV4. You could do it. It's eight characters. You could do it. All right. We're going to end the show right there because it's just like fully (laughs) ridiculous. Um, I want to call it a great story from one of our newest reporters, Mia Sato. Uh, She wrote about buy nothing groups on Facebook and now they are making an app and a platform of their own with all of the attendant 
uh, community dynamics and app dynamics that you might expect. It's a great story. I encourage you to read it. Like I said, Decoder this week, Cristiano Amon. Next week, actually speaking of cars, we have uh, VW Global CEO Herbert Dice runs all of VW. That was a wild conversation. Uh, he wanted to talk about Tesla, but he, I don't think he's, he's not supposed to, so he kept on referring it to as our American competitor. It was great. Highly encourage you to listen to that. But we'll be back next week with the Virtuous. Dieter will be back. You can tweet at us. I'm at Reckless. Alex is Alex H. Kranz. Dan is DC Seifert. Russell is at Russell Brandom. We love your tweets. Please talk to us. That's it. We'll see you next week. Rock and roll. I'm so excited for these Shield fans. <laughs>